This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a, a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to introduce five-time PGA Tour winner and Golf Channel analyst Mark Wilson to the podcast. Mark, thanks for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Hey, Jason, looking forward to it. And apparently I did well enough last time you had me back. So I appreciate the, the return call. Well, we, we're Illinois guys, right? I mean, we had to do this more than once. Uh, you know, we got to take care of each other here in the Midwest. So absolutely, yeah, no, this is perfect. And I think we got a bunch to talk about with you know, last week in golf, there was uh, there was there's about 17 layers we could dive in. So, should be an interesting conversation. But uh, let, let's let's talk presidents. Let's talk oh, presidents. For sure. Yeah, let's let's go. I'll, I'm going to start off broad, then we'll we'll narrow it down. But your thoughts on the entire week, kind of from 5,000 feet, then we'll kind of dive into niches here. But just give me your overall impressions of the event, and uh, you know. Uh, what what you enjoyed about watching it with could be improved. Just sort of your your five thousand foot view of the of the uh, Presidents Cup in two thousand nineteen. Uh, a big success, I think, in terms of what maybe the Presidents Cup the last few times that they've gone on. Uh, just for uh, viewing myself, if I think about it, I couldn't wait to get the kids to bed and and you know get the DVR on. The great viewing hours too. Like we're having to stay up too late here in the Central Time Zone to watch the completion of the matches every day. So. Overall, very good. And we got Tiger Woods involved in an event, his first time playing an event uh, since 2013 uh, in, a, in a team competition like that. Uh, it's going to be a success, right? And people are going to tune in. Uh, but I think they, with the internationals getting off to such a good start there the first two days, uh, and the, the U.S. rallying, uh, it had some drama. And you need drama in these events to keep people on the edge of their seats, and it did just that. Looking at the golf course at Royal Melbourne, what do you think about having a course like that that is more uh, nuanced in angles? And, I mean, obviously it's a classic layout, but a little bit more browned out and the ball's sort of bouncing and moving. It's not kind of traditionally what you see on the PGA Tour. Uh, what was your view of the golf course, and how do you, as, as a PGA Tour player, how do you, or I don't know if you've played or not, but how do you like that style of golf course uh, where the thought process really comes in over just pure, you know, raw power? Oh, I absolutely love Royal Melbourne. I actually had the chance to play that when I played the Australian tour before I got on the U.S. tour. I went down there and managed to get my card played over there a couple of times and played the Heineken Classic there at Royal Melbourne. And, and I love that kind of golf. Uh, and especially in match play, you can tuck hall locations behind those deep bunkers that seem really unfair and would really mess up pace of play in a stroke play event. But with match play, you're able to use all those little corners uh, I loved uh, the par three on the back nine, 14, where they're tucking it just short of the green. The guys are hitting wedges and nine irons, and then even on Sunday when it was tucked left over that bunker. And I was watching with my son. I'm like, you know, they're, they're saying they're hitting a nine iron, and, and it landed just on the green to roll to about 40 feet. And I said, oh, that's a good shot. And my 12-year-old looks at me and goes, how is that a good shot, Dad? Like, well, you haven't played this golf course. Uh, that's just kind of how you have to strategize, strategize around the place. Uh, and Ernie Els said it best early on in one of his press conferences. I love what he said about the whole locations, that the pin, when you're looking at it from the fairway at Royal Melbourne, a lot of times it is not a target at all. It's a destination. So certainly a, a thinking man's golf course 
Uh, I love the brownout uh, thing. Uh, I thought it was going to take on a little bit more shape. I played the 2014 U.S. Open at Pinehurst, and that was really what the USGA tried to convey to the masses and the superintendent saying, we don't need golf courses that look super green. Uh, it didn't seem to take off just yet in the U.S., but uh, I certainly hope it's going to. When you played uh, Royal Melbourne in competition, was it set up the same way because it's a 36-hole facility that they took two different nines, or did you play it on the traditional 18 of one of those two courses? How, do, how was it set up when you played it? You know, my recollection is that we had the you know, the composite course that they put together. Of those 36 holes they put, uh, it's not nine and nine, I don't think. I think it's maybe 12 from one and six from another one. Uh, we played the one that they used for the tournament. Uh, the 16th hole for the President's Cup was actually the 18th hole we played. So they kind of moved things around a little bit there. All the holes are really close together. Uh, but what a fantastic experience. And um, I sure hope to get back there again. Uh, even to just play it for fun. It's one of those courses you could play over and over again just for fun. Would you like to see more courses like that on the PGA Tour, uh, just to have a little bit more variety than kind of what you guys traditionally see? Uh, yeah, I think we, we all welcome those, too. Uh, but what I said earlier, too, you got to be a little careful with how they set it up, right, when you start getting those firm, fast conditions, especially with the greens, and having, uh, you know, you have a full field of 156 players going through it, uh, you got balls bouncing over greens, us tour pros pitching and chipping from everywhere. It ends up being a, a big log jam, and no one wants to see that. We don't want to play um, in conditions that slowly. So uh, the DJ Tour staff, though, will be smart to, to set it up uh, appropriately in that fashion, especially on Thursday and Friday, but I would welcome that uh, for sure. Yeah, maybe not every week, but I think it's just it can potentially to solve a little bit of the you know distance issue the guys are hitting it. You know, on paper, it looks like a short golf course and still gave them fit. So if you could ever kind of bring that element of some finesse back in the game, not in every uh, tour event, but I think it's, it would be welcomed for uh, the golf viewers to see a little bit different style of golf. And I thought the golf course looked fantastic. I love that style of golf. So I would love to see a few more events where, you know, it's a little bit more strategy than it is simply, you know, hit as far as you can and try to get a short iron on it. So I enjoyed watching it as a golf fan, that's for sure. You said the word finesse, and I love hearing that. We don't see that as much in golf. We don't talk about it as much. We think about these guys bombing it out there and then wedging it on even 480-yard par fours. Um, but I, but they're still using finesse. Uh, but you're right, it's uh, Royal Melbourne really brought out that strategy and finesse in all the players, and it'd be fun to, to see that. And for a guy like me who hits it about 260 yards in the air on a good day, I would love some more strategy involved golf courses. Well, let's talk Tiger. Uh, give me uh, your impression or a grade for him as a captain, as a player, and uh, I'm going to have you put your uh, analyst hat on. What are you seeing in his golf swing that looks smoother or better of because to, to me he looks like he's swinging at it really well but i would love to hear your your thoughts not just mine of uh what you're seeing in uh in tiger there yeah you know it's funny when you start giving uh players and captains and this stuff in sports in general a grade uh it, it seems like it's so hard for us to put aside um the win and the loss because let's say somehow you know matt kuchar Ricky Fowler, a few of those guys end up losing their matches, and the, the internationals win. Well, now is Tiger a bad captain? Uh, you know, just because a few guys maybe didn't perform at the very end, uh, because I'm going to be just like normal, like the U.S. won. You got to give Tiger, uh, you know, an A, an A minus, something like that for for everything he did. 
him, what he did, I mean, he played great. His game looked amazing. Uh, you know, I think the only thing you maybe scrutinize is maybe continuing to put Patrick Reed and Webb Simpson out together. You know, they, they lost two in a row. Then to put them out again, uh, that might be the only thing I'd, I'd uh, criticize them for because they ended up winning. Um, you know, his his golf game, though, Tiger's stepping up to the plate, and um, you know, he kept talking about the word trust all along, trusting his guys, trusting the, the, the assistant captains and all the other players, and he really did seem to rely on that because when he got into – in between the ropes and actually was playing, he played some spectacular golf. And you touched on it earlier. What I see in his swing, it just seems more in, in control. Uh, yeah, I know he, he probably wants to hit it uh, maybe a little bit longer, but he's realized it's long enough. He doesn't need to uh, swing for the fences. It looks to me like he's going at it in that 80 85% range, and, and so he's not hitting as many of those foul balls that uh, maybe we saw years past that got him into trouble and led to some uh, – bogeys and double bogeys he seems like he's really uh within himself and um, um so all in all certainly i would give him an a plus as a player going three and all and then uh you know as i said earlier captain a minus i agree with you i always think it's interesting of and you could probably answer this but a- a- as a tour player right i mean how much can the captain really do i mean they can maybe look at stats or you know big data to see what players might play best uh, together or, or if they're doing the pod system, however they're doing it. But at the end of the day, right, you guys are professionals. There can't be that much. It's not like I could rah If I was even the captain, I can't rah-rah or Tiger can't rah-rah it up more than you guys already want to beat the other guy. I mean, you guys don't get to the PGA Tour and play at the level you did without having that, you know, competitor spirit in you. So I've I've always thought kind of what you're saying, that the, the captain can get too much credit and – also, too much blame if they don't win, right? It's sort of still on the players to go out there and, and get the job done. Uh, and I can't imagine the captain can have that big of an influence on, you know, how bad those players want to want to want to win, right? So, is that a fair assessment in your eyes as well? It's very fair, and and you know, for um, a captain, I think it's his responsibility to just try to put players in the best possible situation to help them. Um, succeed, right? You 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 want to put them in that position, and and then it's up to them. Uh, and I'm sure there's uh, second guessing that goes on, especially more in the camp when you end up losing. I, I felt like that was always interesting when I went out there and and played tournaments. Uh, most of the time, you're losing and you're second guessing yourself. Uh, there'd be a few times I happen to win a tournament, and then I start second guessing myself Sunday night or Monday morning. Then I have to kick myself and go, Hey, you couldn't have finished any higher. Uh, you know, if I finished first, you, no matter if you've done that a little better, you still would have finished first. So I think for Tiger, uh, he's probably being less critical of some of the decisions he's made because ultimately uh, they had more points and won it uh, versus Ernie I might be kicking himself uh, on, on certain little details, and uh, who knows how those would have played out uh, if it would have happened a different way. Let's talk Captain Ells. Uh, give me your assessment of uh, the international team and uh, how he did uh, trying to get those guys to kind of all play as, uh, as, a, as one unit, which has to be a little bit difficult because they're all over the world. But uh, let me know your thoughts on Ernie and uh, the job that he did. Well, it's just been a pleasure to be a part of this generation. I mean, I got to play with Ernie Ells a number of times on the PGA Tour and, and even, um, you know, in his charity events and stuff like that. It's um, He's such an honorable man, and, and but he... He, he's very competitive, too. He's that kind of quiet assassin. You know, he said they kill you with kindness, but uh, and then you watch him swing, and it's, it's nice and smooth. You think he's just uh, 
just going to be a, a pushover out there, but he's not. And so he wanted to win it. And, and I saw it early on. I remember seeing uh, at events in the last uh, two years where he was getting his players together, the, his potential players together, to try to uh, get a bond of them because that's the hardest part that we've talked about for the international side. Uh, players coming from so many different um, areas of the world and different languages and different cultures and and maybe they have the PGA, the U.S. PGA Tour is, is really the only common thread. But he did a great job in advance. And then the stuff I read about him with using the analytics to try to, to again, maximize the potential and put his players in positions to succeed uh, was truly remarkable. And, boy, let's face it, that U.S. team was almost down 1-9, uh, you know, come um, the end of the second day. And, and then that would have been even a harder mountain to climb yeah I, I from my standpoint i thought he did great with it's a, it's, it's a tough situation if you just look at the math of it right if you just took at the the world rankings of the players the americans have an advantage i thought he conducted himself great they, it was competitive and some of these haven't been recently i, I hope he's really set kind of some uh, groundwork for the next captain to kind of work off of um, love the logo he did. I thought it was cool bringing that, like, that segment of it. So I, I, I hope these matches become more must-watch television because I was, I mean, I was watching it on Saturday night. I was on the edge of my seat. And I, th- I thought he stepped up and did a very, very good job knowing that the cards he was dealt just from, you know, the world ranking, the quality of the player, and then trying to get them to work together. That's a tough one. I thought he did great, and I can't wait to see the next President's Cup now because hopefully this competition gets more like the Ryder Cup where you don't know which direction it's going to go. Uh, that's for sure. Harry, he did not go through the motions, so he took this very seriously, and, and hats off to him for uh, for making a contest. And, and uh, boy, I know he wished they had won, but uh, but it was very it was very close, and, and the last two have been close. So maybe we uh, we got something going in the right direction here. How excited are you to see him on the Champions Tour next year where you can focus on golf and sort of become a, a PGA Tour player again sort of full-time? From what I've heard, and you might know more than I would on this, that he's pretty game to get out there and really start competing against the guys from his generation, and he's going to be playing pretty hard out there from what I've heard. Yeah, I, I think it's like you got a new lease on life. and I'm, I'm closer myself. I'm five years away, but everybody I, I run into that's in that, you know, that's in that camp uh, they, they say it's just like you're a kid again. You know, you're playing against your peers, the guys that you spent 15, 20 years with on the U.S. tour, and uh, they play a game a little more similar than you're used to playing versus uh, you know, these young kids that come out so polished, uh, bombing and all this stuff. Uh, and I, we love seeing that. I know you know the players are still going to like seeing that, but to get out there where you're a little more competitive, um, I think Ernie's going to thrive. Yeah, I think it would be great for the tour, too, right? Like, who doesn't want to watch that golf swing? You know, if you're a fan out there or watching on TV, I think, you know, him versus Retief. Like, there's going to be some good guys coming up in the next few years to make it competitive. I'm super excited about kind of seeing this next generation come into their own and, and really start competing out there. So I think from a fan base standpoint, it's going to be great seeing Big Easy out there on the Champions Tour playing a little bit more. Um, another one, and, and this is really interesting to me. The Bryson thing, and I know you're very big on fitness. You've worked out your whole career, kept yourself in great shape, but you didn't put on 35 pounds of muscle or muscle and mass. So do you li- overall, do you like the idea of where he's going with this? Does it make sense? What's, what's sort of your view on this experiment, for lack of a better word, of what he's doing? Because I can't think of any other tour player that's tried to put on that much weight on purpose. 
No, it's, it's spot on from what I've learned in the last couple of years. I've uh, been fortunate enough in my neck of the woods, there's a guy named John Perna who's uh, been working with a lot of high school players in the college, and his main goal is to get these players uh, college scholarships and beyond, and now he's got a bunch of guys playing on uh, tours around the world, and that's one big thing he talked to me about, how um, you know when they measure players, it's uh, it's not as much about flexibility, it's more about about strength and, um, and and really bulking up, you know, and, and the more the, the the more muscle mass you have, the more club head speed you can gain. And, and he's got proof from his players. These guys are swinging it in high school 120, 125 miles an hour, and it's, it's incredible to me. And so I haven't put on 35 pounds, but I've tried to put on 10 pounds uh, just because of that. So uh, I cannot wait to get out to – see Bryson DeChambeau next year and, and just chat with him for a few minutes about how he was able to pull this off in such a short time. Um, obviously, he's single. He doesn't have kids. His main focus is on his golf, and that's helpful. But to do that in that such short window uh, shows incredible dedication. And in his mind, the next step that he needs uh, to be the number one player in the world. He's not content with where he is. Uh, he's certainly... Uh, is happy with what he's done in the game, but he's really hungry to go to that next level. Do you think his golf swing is better for kind of a bulkier body where in the sense where it's just more, you know, hands seem pretty quiet for the most part, a lot of rotation. He kind of gets his speed and power more from those muscles versus, you know, like a Fowler type move where you drop it to the inside or a Sergio move where it kind of lags in and, and gets explosive from that way. Do you also think his golf swing might be, um, I'm trying to say, more apt to that that kind of size making a bigger difference? Or do you think size matters across whatever style of golf swing or nuance that you have in the game? Well, Jason, you bring up a really good point. I really never thought of it that way. Uh, I think it's, uh, from what I understand, uh, you know, strength and bulk and everything is going to help uh, no matter kind of how you swing it. Um, but, uh, but with Bryson's kind of more, I guess you can almost say repeating, motion um you bring up a really good point i'm gonna have to analyze that i'm going to the video i can't wait to get home and look at that side by side and see uh if there's been any changes in his um you know in how his swing looks um or if it's uh, really been an easy transition for him you think he's ready for that next level you think the talent's there to be number one two three player in the world and uh you know to, con- to consistently stay there say for our next five seven eight years I, I do. I, I really do. I mean, look what he's already done out of college. I mean, he's, he, we kind of forget he was in college, what, just four years ago? Uh, I remember meeting him at the Colonial Tournament. He tried to explain to me what vector putting was, and I kind of zoned out after five minutes. I'm like, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about. Uh, and it works for him, right? And um, at the time, boy, when you're not competing against the best of the best in, say, the professional game, all the naysayers and people that I'm sure were second-guessing him had to be way bigger than they are now. For, so for him to stick with, you know, stick to his guns and do all those things really shows, uh, you know, tremendous confidence in himself. And that's what you need to be, you know, the top three players in the world, um, that you're not going to step down to anybody. So, yeah, I see Bryson um, uh, doing everything and, and being part of the game here and, and part of the story as we go into every major championship. I agree with you. I got to watch him the year he won at the John Deere that Friday. So he won that Sunday with the putt. But I think he shot like 63 out there that day on that Friday. I walked 
all 18 holes with them. And as you know from that tournament, if anyone wants to go watch a PGA Tour event where you can really watch the pros up close, how they go about mm-hmm. tearing apart a golf course and strategy and all that stuff, the John Deere Classic uh, out in the Quad Cities is great for that. So I watched all yeah. 18 holes. And I, after I was done watching him, I thought to myself, this kid will be a superstar. He had all nine shots. He also seemed to have about two or three different gears, meaning he had fairway finder with a with a driver. He had 320 when he wanted it with the driver. He hit it to the right spots. I thought, boy, is this kid talented. I mean, I, you know, you never know how great of a level they're going to get to, but all, boy, I, the tools were in that box that he hit the required shot and had all of them. High, low, all, you know, right to left, left to right, all nine shots. I was massively impressed watching that kid play you know obviously he's playing well he won that week but i i thought his talent was through the roof well i'm glad you brought up the john deere classic i mean that's the fifth major of course according to steve stricker uh but uh bryce at the shamble that week i remember hitting balls next to him on the range on tuesday and i overheard him talking to his caddy um about um one of the pages in the golfing machine book that he read as a kid and how his caddy was like, yeah, Bryce, and you've probably read that page a hundred times, haven't you? It's like, oh, more than that. But there was something that clicked for that week, and he was reading through his book, something he'd read hundreds and hundreds of times, and it clicked, and there was a feel that just propelled him because he was in a bit of a, a slump there at the time. His rookie year on tour, not looking like he's going to keep his card at all, and then he wins that thing, and then the floodgates kind of opened up over the last uh, you know, 24 months. Uh, it's just a great reminder of, of this game and how great it is that, that you never know when something's around the corner. Um, you know, keep digging that hole, and, and you might find something. Let's talk Patrick Reed. Oh, gosh, where do you even start with this uh, five-part chapter hero? <laughs> so let's just start with the hero. So, and I have, yeah. I'm, I'm honestly, I have no opinion because I, I, I don't think anyone will ever know except Patrick. That's just my opinion. I, you know, I haven't. I was listening to the Hank Haney podcast, and he talked in his backyard. He has a, a sand bunker, and he tried to move the sand at about what he estimated that Patrick hit. And he, Hank said, "I can't feel it." You know, obviously Hank can play some golf and knows what he's doing. So I come to this with no preconceived notion of what happened. But from a from a PGA Tour player's point of view. How did you see that situation, and what's just sort of your opinion on the, we'll, we'll get part two later, but on, just on the hero thing, the, what went down, how he answered the question, and kind of then we'll we'll move to the President's Cup because there's some layers to this one. Yeah, like you said, where do you start? Where do you start? It is, um, I've heard a lot of different things, and, and it was a big story, and I will say I did not catch it live, uh, but was at a Christmas party that night and, and had a bunch of people come up to me and ask me about it. I'm a, and within moments, they showed me the YouTube video. And, and yeah, I was a little shocked at it because when I go into uh, a waste area in that situation, uh, you, you're, you're not – yeah, you're, you're able to ground your club, but it's our responsibility to be very precise in a situation like that and, and, and err on the side of making sure we're not breaking a rule. So, uh, you know, when I'm practicing and it doesn't count, I'm going to hover the club really close to the sand. But um, in that situation, if – if I'm going to actually ground the club behind it, uh, if I'm going to take a practice swing, I'm going to lift that club straight up in the air a couple inches and then take my practice swing. Uh, so it was um, it was weird. I think, like you said, we can't get into his head. We don't know. I think that's a big question. That's why it was such a big story, that by his reaction, everyone kind of felt uh, like he was cheating, and that was tarnishing the game. Uh, we can't get into his head. If he truly was in his heart of hearts, 
trying to cheat, well, that's a shallow feeling, and he's going to have to live with that for the rest of his life, and I feel sorry for him. Let's hope he wasn't. Let's hope he just sort of zoned out a little bit and um, and really just made a mistake. Uh, I'm sure he would love to go back to it and just go ahead and, and make some kind of funny remark uh, when he was told he was getting two shots and just say, are you sure I only get two? Wouldn't I get four because I did it twice? Then the public would have loved him. And so I think he also would like to go back and maybe handle it a little bit differently. Um, but uh, it's going to be something that sticks with him uh, for the rest of his career, unfortunately. So if you had that kind of lie where there's like the footprint so as you went back with your swing, right, you can hit that mound. He had a he had a bad lie, right? Would you have even grounded your club in that situation? Because you know you're going to have to kind of lift the I mean, it can't be your normal path. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, would you have even grounded – would you have been so cognizant, for lack of a better word, of the of that lie in that waste bunker of what could happen? You know, you can't hit the sand going back. Would, would you have just hovered it and hit it, basically, and just, you know – slap it to the front of the green and, and hope to make something. I mean, I, that's the other surprise I was like, he's got the thing down and he's moving it back up. Like from looking at the lie, it seems like it would have been, you hover it and you just take your whack at it. Well, it's one of those things where if in my head, yes, I would have, I, I probably wouldn't have grounded it because there wasn't really a place to ground the club. Yeah, exactly. The way you're yeah. describing it, there's kind of a hole there. Uh, so if you are going to ground it uh, in my head, in my head, I think my mind would have been going like, well, if I'm going to ground it, I think in my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to help myself out by taking a little stand on the backswing, which is now allowed in the rules, uh, well, in the in the waste bunker area. Um, so I think I would have hovered it a bunch. Like I said earlier, you got to err on the side of of really following the rules, and and um, that's you're right. I I don't think I would have crowded it at all. Then we get over to the President's Cup, and and I think it's fairly common knowledge rather than like you said to try to defuse the bomb by by him saying I got a bad break or I'm paraphrasing what he said probably didn't help his cause and then the, the media thing explodes even more basically my opinion like you said he just should have said I went brain dead trying to focus on the shot and I should have gotten the penalty a thousand percent he sort of said that but then the next day he's saying that it gets a bad deal yada 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 so now you got this stuff with your team on the plane going to play Royal Melbourne with the, and, I, and, and I know you're not on the plane with those guys and stuff, and so I, I know you don't know the exact insights, but but how is that going to be viewed? Do they just say that's Patrick being Patrick and they're ready to go play? Does it, could it have a negative effect on the team? Are PGA Tour players, for the most part, you guys are can tune basically everything out and you go do business when business is up and you guys have to play and it doesn't even factor in? Like So then how do you think potentially that controversy filters over to that next week? Well, I, yeah, it, I would hope they talked about it. Um, otherwise, it's a big uh, elephant in the room, right? And and you feel like you got to bring it up. Uh, with that said, uh, I didn't really pay attention to a whole lot of what was going on in the media or, or uh, what was on the Golf Channel. I, I would have maybe, if I was playing, I would have known there was a, a situation. I would have watched the video. I wouldn't have sat there and listened to um, uh Randall Chamblee's and, and everybody's takes on what I did or what one of my teammates did. Uh, so let's remember that, that these guys aren't spending hours upon hours listening to all the different takes and analyzing it. They've got their own game to, to think about. Um, but like I said, I hope that they talked about it a little bit on the plane from a couple different interviews I heard. Sounds like it wasn't necessarily addressed um, spot on. 
Um, but, uh, you know, you saw JT's kind of uh, funny video with them. Um, so I think they were trying to make light of it the best that they could and try to uh, ease Patrick into the fact that, hey, you know what, you're our teammate, and um, we stand by we stand by you, and um, and we're getting in the, into the ring to fight, and that's what we're doing. And I think they had to take that perspective on. Uh, the pairing with Webb Simpson, what was your opinion of that partnership? And then you kind of alluded to it uh, earlier, and I think that's kind of the, the post-analysis of this at you know, maybe should have sat them one day, but what, or I'm sorry, that last, uh, for that third match, what was sort of your opinion of that pairing of Patrick with Webb? And is that kind of the most natural fit that, uh, from the team that you saw that the Americans had, that that would, that would work best personality wise from probably knowing both guys a little bit? I don't know. Was, was Tiger maybe thinking like, okay, you know, Webb is respected in the world. People know that, uh, he's, uh, a follower of Jesus, he goes to the Bible study on tour, was he thinking, okay, maybe maybe the fans are going to be a little nicer with him around because, you know, versus Patrick with somebody else. I mean, I don't know exactly what Tiger was thinking, uh, um, but uh, obviously he did a lot of great decisions, and I'm sure it was more than that. Uh, but, you know, Webb being level-headed and, and not going to let anything affect him. I mean, think about that huge lead he had at the Players' Championship sleeping on the lead every single night and a large lead, uh, and he still won. Uh, you know, stuff like that shows Tiger that he is, um, he can overcome anything and, um, and that he was probably a, a nice, a level-headed partner for Patrick Reed to have is, is really the best thing I can come up with. That's, that's my, my best. I've heard, I don't know Webb, but I've heard he's one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet on tour, and he just seems he like sure a total has. class act, and I can just see exactly that. I mean, plus he's a great player, right? I mean, he has no weaknesses in his game. I think he, if I was going to match him up with Patrick, to me it makes the most sense, right? He's calm. He's level-headed. I think it's uh, it, it made the most sense from that standpoint. Um, the caddy situation, have you ever had that situation as a player where Patrick Reed's caddy, Kessler, had enough, you know, he shoves a guy or whatever, which is very odd on the on a PGA Tour. Thoughts on that, and have you ever had a situation where you're hearing it from somebody who may have had too many cocktails or something, where your caddy has ever, you know, not to that level of shove a guy, but have to go, has that happened more than people know about where you have to go to a guy and say, okay, as a caddy, I, that, that I'm protecting my guy, that's enough, and, you know, we're not going to be doing this the rest of the afternoon. Yeah. Funny, like Kessler Corain, it just sounds like he should be in the boxing ring, right? He's got that really <laughs> cool name. Uh, but there is a responsibility when you're inside the ropes to handle yourself better and more composed than the fans, right? It seems like a double standard, but that's part of the deal. That's part of uh, of getting paid what you do. Uh, a very unfortunate situation. I'm sure that wasn't the first thing you heard. It all boiled over, and eventually that's where it got to. And um, you got to just put the blinders on and, and not let it um, affect you personally. Yeah, I... I didn't hear a whole lot. Um, it's more directed to players, um, and I haven't, uh, which I guess is the same thing in that situation, but I haven't ever seen a caddy necessarily want to go after somebody, um, you know, in defense of their player. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it's like you, you, you do feel it, but at the same time you've got to realize that um, they're just trying to get under your skin. And if you realize that that's what they're trying to do, and, and you don't want to give them control of that. 
right? If, if that's what you go ahead and take on, then you're going to have the right perspective to just move forward and, and, and say, hey, I want to power through this and see how mentally strong I can be and, and come out positive on the other side. And the other thing I think about is what happens if that Australian guy punches Kessler? Patrick Reed has to now jump out of the – you know what I mean? That could have been a disaster. You know, oh, by, disaster. Yeah, right? So uh, I don't I don't recall ever seeing anything like that where an altercation actually happened. So, of course, it's the uh, – <laughs> like I said, it was one hell of a saga for the uh, from the hero all, all the way to the end with Reed, and then you know he steps up at the end and wins his match because he's a gritty, tough competitor. I was really hoping, how did they not give him the Cam Smith Patrick Reed match? <laughs> I wanted to see that. Right, like how good of TV would that be? Because the guys can pick. It's not like the Ryder Cup where it's a blind draw. Like that would have been an interesting match, and maybe they wanted to defuse the bomb a little bit. But I was hoping, I was hoping one of those two would be like. Patrick Reed and Ellis goes, I'm putting out Cam Smith. So that's only part yeah, I think we, You're right. I think we all were, but thankfully, um, I guess they had the time to think it through. And whether it's the PGA Tour that, that told Tiger and Ernie to not do that, or it was Tiger and Ernie that decided let's not do it, um, probably better that they did. And I will say when they had the camera zoomed in on the final handshakes there, they, the two teams were, were going back and forth. They didn't even zoom in on um, Cam Smith and Patrick Reed handshake whether they shook hands or not um i think it's uh uh probably blown a little bit out of proportion um and um they'll be uh fine going forward uh but uh yeah it's it's one of those things in tv you kind of you want to see that you like that drama and that that little bit we don't see that in golf a whole lot so i think it, we were yeah, all right. hoping for it yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of Seve versus Zinger, right? Where it's like, oh my, I mean, I'm old enough to remember that, like, this is going to be fantastic, right? Like, even as a kid, I'm like, oh man, or, you know, Ray Floyd against a guy on the European in a Ryder Cup in its day where you just knew there was a little bit of animosity there. Like, it, it made for great theater. So, but I can understand too yeah. why they said we're not going to have the circus go to the fifth level. Um, any players that you're surprised didn't perform as well as their talents are on either side of the uh, of the internationals or the Americans. I mean, they're all great players to be there, but is there any that kind of stick out to you of like, wow, I'm surprised that player didn't play better? Um, you know, I guess the one maybe is, um, and I feel like he still had a great cup, was Tony Finau. You know, he never won a point, but he did have three halves, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, um, but you know what, for him, the reason I guess it wasn't too surprising was that he's really talked about how he's devoting himself to uh, working on his putting and changing some stuff. And, and I think when you go into a, a event like that, let's face it, it usually comes down to short game and who's holding the most putts. And if you've got a guy who's, whose mind's a, not exactly on um, just being an athlete, because he's such an incredible athlete. You watch him hit a golf ball, uh, you know, it looks like he's got just a little stick in his hand hitting a marshmallow. He bombs it out there 350-plus. You know, but with a putter, it seems like he's thinking a little bit too much. And when you're you're thinking too much, you're not freeing it up. And so I think the putter was just kind of the thing that kind of held Tony back um, a little bit. A little bit. I was hoping he was going to at least get one W during the week, um, but um, but he didn't. Um, but all in all, yeah, not a whole lot of surprise there. Uh, everyone kind of played um, played. The way I kind of expected, Justin Thomas surprised me the way he finished out his matches on, on Friday and Saturday, you know, blow up that five-up lead and then to lose his signals to, to Cam. 
uh, was a little bit surprising, and, and we'll see if he can um, shake that off. I'm sure he can, no problem, because let's face it, they've got the cup. Yeah, and uh, I thought Hong Tong Lee would play a little bit better. He's so good. I watch a lot of European Tour golf, and he's really good. He's really good. So I thought maybe he would have a little bit more of an impact on the international side, but you know, I w- don't don't be surprised if he wins on the European Tour next year. He's uh, he's pretty world class. So that was the only one that stood out to me of uh, surprised he didn't play up to his potential because that kid is he is good. He's really really good. His recent form, yeah, he he is really good. His recent form wasn't so good, and I think. You know, he he didn't play. He's the only player to not play the first two days. And, I mean, we're human beings. I mean, I feel like that's got to get in your psyche just a little bit, even though these guys are confident players. But a kid that's that young, who's maybe not playing that great, and then also sees that his captain maybe doesn't believe in him, is going to probably put a little extra unnecessary pressure on yourself. And I think that's probably what happened to Hawtong. The other thing I thought was very cool is to see Tiger get that emotional with the guys and the hugs, and he almost broke down. Like, you could tell it meant the world to him. I love the new Tiger Woods or <laughs> versus the, the – I mean, I love 2000 Tiger Woods and 2005 Tiger Woods. You, you probably got to see that part of it. But I love it that he is, you know, singing on the bus and more open and mentoring these guys. Like, it's uh, – boy, he looks like he's in a good, healthy, happy place in life at this point. And I think it's to actually see his personality. Maybe as a tour player you had – you know, he does open up to the guys a little bit more than we see from the public, but I absolutely love seeing the joy on his face and, uh, you know, being one of the guys on the team versus just the big boy alpha dog that just does his own thing. Yeah, I think age brings perspective in almost everybody, and um, I, I was fortunate enough to play alongside Tiger Woods basically his whole career. I mean, we're only a year apart, so I got to see him at junior golf, and let's face it, he was the story everywhere we went, uh, whether it was just the orange bowl or the u.s junior he was on the front page of the sports section uh when he's 14 15 16 years old he was the story right and so i understood why he got a little bit shy and didn't want to um you know go out he'd been been burned a few times with things he said and decided all right you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna go into my shell here and i'm not gonna tell you what i think because it might come back to haunt me uh and and now with everything he's gone through there's certainly a gratefulness there that's changed his perspective, and, and I agree. It's a lot of fun uh, to see uh, Tiger Woods compete. Um, but look out. These boys, you know, I know he were, they were his boys uh, during this, and they're still going to be his boys, but there's going to be something else that they're going to see come the next major championship, and, and he's not scared to step on their throats when it comes down to winning another uh, major. And I think absolutely, right? I think that's what they would even want, right? Like you you want the best at his best, and I'm assuming there's not going to be much conversation if he's got a chance at any golf tournament with any of those guys on Sunday. It's all business. And, you know, that's what we still want from Tiger when he's inside the ropes, but it's nice to see once it's over for him to look like he's just enjoying the moment. It's it's. I think golf fans get joy in watching him have joy, so it's, it's very cool to see. Last one I got here for you. What are you most looking forward to? Uh, in the 2020 season of maybe some storylines or some players or, you know, just some mm-hmm. some topics yeah. overall that's going to kind of, uh, with your job at the Golf Channel, is going to kind of have your interest and you're going to kind of be looking for and watching? Well, yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough to top 2019. I mean, Tiger winning the Masters and all the stuff that ensued after that. Um, but we're going to we're gonna go on the, on the road here. And, um, you know, one guy I'm really intrigued about watching is Victor Hovland. And the main reason is this kid's got to be super confident. 
He uh, he gets his tour card through the Corn Ferry Finals, uh, has to go there and do those three events, didn't win like Kyle Morikawa or Matthew Wolf, but does that, and only plays four events in the fall session. And there were uh, 11 events, 10 of which, you, he, which he could have played in. Uh, that shows to me that he is super confident in his ability. Uh, most players, when you get that tour card, me included, you play whatever you get into because you are scared of a reshuffle and you're scared of getting down at the bottom of those 50 players and maybe not getting in all the tournaments on the West Coast you want to. He was not worried about that. He is thinking about bigger and better things than just keeping his card. So, Victor Hovland, look out for him in 2020. Great stuff. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, love the perspective. And uh, hopefully you're going to be playing a few events next year as well. You're going to get out there a little bit? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start the season playing the American Express and La Quinta, the old Bob Hope tournament, and yeah. um, and see if I can catch lightning in a bottle. And then um, i got a new gig next year doing XM Radio. They call live golf. Uh, my first event will be um, the Waste Management Phoenix Open for that. And then I'll still keep doing PGA Tour Live. So my 2020 is going to be a little bit busier than 2019, but but yeah, my first my first golf event will be actually playing. So I'm excited to get back inside the ropes and compete with the boys. Great stuff, pro. Thanks again for everything. You bet, Jason. Thanks for having me on, and, and you have a great Christmas and a great 2020. You as well.